Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Minority Money is going to be celebrating Black History Month for the month of February. Black History Month is going to run from February 1st until March 1st. A lot of you may not have known that Black History Month actually started as Black History Week. In 1926, Carter G. Woodson and the Association of Studies of Negro Life and History started this celebration called Negro History Week. It coincided with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln, which is February 12th, and Frederick Douglass, which was February 14th, both dates, which were very important dates to the black community. Fast forward to 1970. 1970 was the first time that Black History Month was actually proposed by a group of black educators at Kent State. They proposed that we have a Black History Month, and then, wouldn't you know, six years later, or about five years later, President Gerald Ford took this opportunity to make this a national celebration. So the United States recognized Black History Month. And this was the quote from our president at the time. He urged Americans to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every endeavor throughout our history. I thought to myself that this was an acknowledgement of how much Black history was interwoven in American history, almost unseparated. You cannot separate Black history from American history. With that being said, we had a few other countries jump onto this as well. The United Kingdom started celebrating Black History Month in 1987. We had Canada start celebrating Black History Month in 1995. And then the Republic of Ireland started celebrating Black history in 2010. I hope you guys enjoy this celebration of Black history by Minority Money. We got some very, very fun episodes planned for you, and we are going to do our version of how we are going to celebrate Black excellence during the month of February. Hope you enjoy these interviews. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Today, we're going to be joined by Lauren Williams. And you may have recognized that name because she's been on the show before, but I think even more so than being on the show before, you might recognize her name from some of the Olympics. So today we're joined by our Olympian, Lauren Williams, also a CFP, also just an all around badass and black girl magic is popping over here. So glad to have her on. Lauren, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. I am excited to chat about a different topic today. Yes, yes. This one's going to be a little better, not better, but, you know, a little more uplifting, if you will, than when we talked about it. It was kind of a heavy topic when we talked on We Need to Talk, but it was something that needed to be talked about. So I was glad you were able to share your story on there. But for those that may not have listened to that or may not know who you are, could you please give a little background of yourself? All right. My life story in three minutes or less, we'll say. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm born in Pittsburgh, raised between Pittsburgh and Detroit because my parents split up when I was three. So I have a love for both. Like you asked me where I'm from. I always have to tell the whole story because I really, really love both places. Went to school at the University of Miami, uh, where it was a hurricane. Did three years there, and then my life took an interesting turn. I became a professional athlete at the age of 20 as a junior in college, 
And it wasn't a goal, aspiration or dream of mine. It was, you know, a way for me to get my education paid for. I was excited about that scholarship and not having student loan debt. But, you know, what ended up happening was six figure earnings at age 20. And though I was a finance major, I realized there was not very much that I knew about handling my personal finances. At that time, financial planning was not a major. It was just regular finance. And, you know, you just don't have the experience at 20 to know what to do. I didn't have anyone in my family who, you know, had earned six figures in their life. I had five sisters, two brothers. My dad was like physically disabled because he had leukemia. There was just a lot going on and I didn't have anyone to turn to to really know how to best organize a six-figure income at age 20. So I hired a financial advisor. It didn't go that well. And not because I was, you know, one of those athlete stories where, you know, I made it rain in the club and bought a Ferrari or somebody stole all my money. You know, it's not really the situation, but as a young professional, I needed like financial literacy and financial planning without literacy is just not going to go right. <laughs> that's, that's the long story short of what I've learned. And I was not getting literacy from the gentleman I was working with. I was just getting investment advice, which so many people in the industry do is they focus, you know, solely on put more money in this investment and that's it. And we know that that's not it. Uh, that is not just <laughs> how you create wealth. So fired him, hired another guy, thought that was going to go better. It didn't. And that's kind of where I was like, okay, enough is enough. You know, my interest has been peaked in this area and I've been doing a little research here and there, but I really need to figure out how to best organize my finances. And literally a Google search led me to the certified financial planning coursework. So that's where the journey began. It's now what, six or seven years, actually it's eight years later, I've been running my own company for four years and I love being able to focus on serving young professionals with all levels of income because like I said, investments are not the key. Not the only thing. I won't say that they're not important and I won't say that they are not a key part of it, but we know that literacy, getting a strong foundation in place and meeting people where they are until they're ready to invest is a really important part of being able to create wealth. No doubt about it. And I like what you said there when we're talking about investments and planning, if you will, or financial you know, education, because I think so many times we, well, I have an investment. That's not a financial plan. You have an investment and that's all it is. It's just an investment going to treat it like an investment. Don't treat it like a financial plan. And I think there's some confusion and lack of literacy and understanding about the difference between a financial plan and a financial product, if you will. So I think it's awesome that you're doing that. And you know, last time we didn't spend much time on the talking about your athletic career, but I've been, you know, doing some research on you, just kind of <laughs> reading and stuff. And so you was like one of the, I believe, like, are you the only woman to like get a medal in the winter and the summer Olympics? You got it. So I'm one of five people to ever earn okay. a medal in the summer and the winter Olympics. And I'm the only American woman who has done it. So somewhere else in some other parts of the world, some people did it, but their Olympic teams are a lot smaller. I'm not throwing any shade. You know, it's really yeah. hard to make an American team. So I feel like, you know, this is kind of next level that I, when I was able Absolutely. to pull that, that off. <laughs> and that's why we got to bring it up. Like, we just can't not talk about how you're the only American woman to pull that off. And, you know, it's like I think about this, and it's funny to have you on, right? Because when we're usually we're sitting down watching the Olympics and then this is when they give these stats. This is the only American woman ever to accomplish it. Now we have the only American woman ever to accomplish something on the show. That to me is 
awesome. And I was just in awe of your accomplishments. It was super. I was actually talking to my wife about it. I was like, I think she did bobsled too. <laughs> she was like, really? I was so we're Googling it, you know, and I'm I was like, she's going to be on the show. She was like, well, I want to meet her too. I was like, you have to do a different show. <laughs> so we get you on. I must but, say um, that first phase of my life was really, really good to go to four Olympic games when, you know, most people aspire to make it to one or, you know, train for one and then also earn three medals was like, wow you know, why do I get to be this? You know, who chose me and how am I divinely purposed to do this thing? I still wonder some days. I got to ask one question, one last question about it, because this is the part that I always think about when you're coming in and when they first announce all the teams. How did it feel, you know, when you're walking into the stadium and they're announcing, you know, the United States? And then how did it feel when you're actually on the podium getting the medal? It's really interesting because it's hard to put a feeling with it. It is one of those things where you're kind of like, in tunnel vision, if you will, like you're experiencing it, but you're also like not experiencing. You're like on a, a supernatural plane, if you were like, wow. But then there's also this aspect of it. And I think this also kind of goes to like the why behind my financial company is that it's literally a moment in time. And then that moment passes. So, you know, you stand on the podium, you're like, I did it. And then it's like, oh, what's for lunch? Like, <laughs> like everything in life. And so one of the things that I really had to deal with and come to terms with was, you know, that this idea of a journey, you know, we use the cliche that life is a journey, but it truly is like, and when we set our goals and our aspirations and everything on like, if I just accomplish this one thing, or I get to this thing, or I get to that, like you get there and then you feel kind of let down because it's like, okay, well, what's next? Instead of just being in pursuit constantly. And that's kind of how I've decided to kind of attack things. And that's kind of how I paint the picture for my financial clients is, you know, we're not pursuing just not just trying to get to being a millionaire. It's like money is a tool to help you live the life you want. So let's talk about like what journey you want to go on. Absolutely. And I just wanted to, I had to ask those questions because I've been thinking about <laughs> it for a while. So I wanted to know what it was like, but yeah, absolutely. And I like how you segue into what you do and how it kind of led you into what you do. I know one of the things that you work with people a lot on is on student loans. And so I would like to spend a little time talking about student loans. I know there's a lot of questions on that right now with everything that's going on. So talk to us a little bit about student loans. I can tell you all the things about student loans. <laughs> I'm going to do like, like a kind of a top three, because literally this could be like a three hour podcast in just this one topic. So, you know, right now we're in the midst of COVID. A lot of people have been able to take advantage of zero dollar payments and no interest accruing if they have federal loans. And that's really cool. But also it's not cool if you don't take advantage of it and use it as a strategy. So one of the biggest strategies is if you are really physically able to pay these loans down um, and you already have a clear plan to pay the loans down, then you should have, you know, taken any extra dollars you had and taken advantage of 0% interest and been just chucking money at this. So while it's fun to like not have to pay your student loans and to forget about them for a while, if you're not actually in a financial position where, you know, you're struggling because of what's happened because of COVID, then you really want to be attacking the loans during that time. Now, on the flip side of that, there are a lot of people who have borrowed and their income is not going to ever get to a point where they're going to be able to pay their loans in full. And I think it's a harsh thing for some people to kind of come to the reality. It's like they're just working so hard, like $50,000 a year and they owe 400,000 on their loans and they're still just, you know, trying to chip away at it. But it's absolutely unrealistic that you're going to pay the loan. So kind of the rule of thumb is if you owe twice as much as you make, you should be working toward forgiveness on your loan. And when you're working toward forgiveness on your loans, you want to pay as little as humanly possible toward them and use the difference to kind of set yourself up for a nice financial future. So Start getting that money saved up for your emergency fund. Start getting that money for, you know, your 401k or whatever retirement plan you're contributing to. And another cool thing is that your retirement plan. So one of the things, like top thing people say when they come to me for student loans is, 
know, my student loans are ruining my life. They're not allowing me to save. And I just want to get rid of them. Like they want me to have a magical wand that makes them go away. And it's like, it doesn't work like that, but they don't have to stop you from saving. So putting money into a 401k, 403b, a traditional IRA, any pre-tax contributions that you can make towards your retirement is going to one, lower your adjusted gross income. So you're going to pay less taxes on that money. And then two, they use the adjusted gross income to calculate your student loan payment if you're on an income-driven repayment plan. So an income-driven repayment plan is what you should be on if you are in one of those scenarios where I just talked about, like you owe double what you make, even 1.5 times what you make. If it's significantly more than your earnings, you're probably going to be going for forgiveness. And this is a way to even further lower your income, pay less on the loan, maximize the forgiveness, and still be putting money away for your retirement. So you're not being messed up by your student loans. You're actually being helped. With the forgiveness part, because that's the, you know, we always see this stuff. Well, you can get forgiveness if you are a, you know, public employee. There's a few different little things that you can be to get forgiveness. Talk to us about that a little bit. Like, how do you get the forgiveness? Yeah. And so that's another good thing is like you said, clickbaity articles have everybody thinking that forgiveness is not real. Mm -hmm. They're like, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to you know figure this out on my own. So there's two types of forgiveness. And one is the type that you just mentioned. Public service loan forgiveness is what it's called. So if you work at a nonprofit organization for the government as some sort of 501c3, anything that is going to be called public service, then you pay on your loans over a period of 10 years. And whatever is left over at the end of that 10 years is completely forgiven. You walk away from them, you fill out a form and you're done. Now, there are four criteria. One is that you have direct loans, direct federal loans. Two, you're on the income driven repayment plan. Three, you make 120 payments, which is the equivalent of 10 years of payments, but it's not 10 years consecutively. So you don't have to pick one job and stay there for 10 years. You can go to three different jobs within the government or nonprofits or whatever. As long as it adds up to 120 payments, you'll be fine. And then the fourth is, like I said, working at a qualifying employer, which we just talked about. So a lot of people didn't know what the criteria were and just assumed their loans were just going to magically go away. And that's why you're seeing the numbers be pretty low. But the numbers are actually going to go up quite a bit after 2020. We didn't get to see those numbers go up because of COVID. No one's paying. So no one's probably even applying for their forgiveness. So that's forgiveness type number one. Forgiveness type number two is what we call taxable forgiveness. So that's when you get on a plan for 20 or 25 years and you pay and then still whatever is left over is forgiven. Now, the difference is, like I said, obviously, I just told you public service is only 10 years. So this is a much longer period of paying, which means you're going to pay more. And then when you get to the end of this 20 or 25 year period, because you didn't work in public service, you need to pay the tax liability associated with whatever amount is forgiven. And so that is a big thing that a lot of people are not preparing for. They get on the income driven plan, they got a hundred dollar payment, they feel great. You know, they're YOLOing with the rest of their money instead of saving for retirement and they're not saving for this tax bomb. So I really want to encourage people to really look at, you know, what could my tax bomb be? Work with a professional to help you calculate what that number could look like and then start saving up for it. So you might see a number like $100,000 is going to be your tax liability 25 years from now. And that can be a little bit overwhelming. But how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, what if I could save 100 bucks a month and threw that in an investment account and it started to grow? And now, you know, that helped me get to where I needed to be 20 years from now. You know what? I didn't even know you could get loan forgiveness if you weren't a public service employee. Exactly. Because no one is talking about these things. They're not sharing the information readily. It's very confusing. There's, like you said, all this misinformation. The number of people that I've talked to, like I said, not actively pursued public service that are eligible for it. I mean, it's a huge game changer for your finance. Imagine 
you owe 400,000, which is a normal number. That's the other thing too, is a lot of people feel alone. They feel very embarrassed. They feel very ashamed that they borrowed so much when tons of people have borrowed the same amount. You hear about a friend that has $20,000 in loans and then you're like, oh my God, I got 400. I'm a stupid person. I made a terrible mistake. I don't want to tell anybody about it. And you're struggling in shame when there's actually real solutions that are available to you, but you really need to know what they are, understand them, and then, you know, start pursuing them. Like I said, because you can still retire. You can still have money set aside for a home down payment. You can buy a home with this $400,000 in loans. People just don't know that the information is out there. And the biggest thing we got to do is start talking to one another about it. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. This is all good stuff. So like when we're talking about this, we're talking about student loans and I heard you reference people putting money away in their 401k and trying to set up retirement accounts. And But before someone can get to that, what are some basic financial literacy principles that you like to talk to people about? What are those? So, you know, it's funny because I think that people hear these principles and they're just like, oh, I heard about that before. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I've done that one. All right. Okay. 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 But the best way to set a strong financial foundation for yourself is to follow those basic literacy principles. So I'll say an emergency fund is one. What I encourage my clients to do is have three months of their take-home pay as their emergency fund. So that's a little bit different than some other people handle it. They hear three to six months of expenses. So depending on what kind of job you have, you might need more than three months. But as a baseline, take whatever you're bringing home on a paycheck. You know, if you get paid biweekly, multiply that times two. And then take that and multiply it times three. That's the amount you need to be having in the bank, sitting in cash. That is so hard for us, so many young professionals, especially professionals of color, because we don't have families. We don't have family members that have that much cash sitting around. So you bring home 10 grand a month and I tell you emergency fund needs to be 30,000. You're like, wait, what? No, I got to make my money, make money. I got to have my money working for me. And, you know, we're here we are down this rabbit hole. You not wanting to ever have anything should some rainy day happening. When, you know, we need to start thinking above and beyond where, oh, okay, I got 30,000 sitting in cash and I still saving and I got another 30,000 that I'm investing or, you know, doing whatever da, 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 needs to be done. But that emergency fund being debt free. Oh my goodness. Emily, if I could tell you the number of times that I have talked to young professionals that are keeping 30% on their credit card. So they're keeping it on there. Actually, despite having the income to pay the debt down because they're like, oh, well, I just wanted to have a good credit score. So like principle number two that I want to drive home today is like pay your credit card bill in full. If you have credit card debt, get it off, get rid of it, you know, work on getting that done and you will have good credit with no dollars and no cents on that credit card every month, not paying a company interest and fees. And then on top of that, credit is a means to go out and get more debt. What's your credit score? You know, before I'm going to date you or something like that, but Ultimately, we need to change the narrative around credit and why it's so important to have good credit. You know, bad credit does mean that you're not in a financially good place, but good credit does not necessarily mean that you are in a financially good place. Mm -hmm. So good credit might be a wonderful thing, but it also allows you to get five more credit cards. So now you got 10, you're paying a minimum on all of them, all these things that kind of pile up on you. So credit is a means to take on more debt. and It is not the most important factor in, you know, determining whether you are financially healthy or not. So those are two kind of big principles. I'll pause there and let you kind of, because I can go on for days. No, no, no. You said that you had four. So we got two. First one is? No, emergency fund. Emergency yes. fund. Yes. Number two would be being debt-free. Debt-free. So emergency fund, and I hear this, the part where I get the most pushback from my clients, just like you, we need to save. 
you know, we say all the stuff, pay yourself first, do this, do that, save money, blah, blah, blah. And the thing that always gets me is now that we've seen stuff happen with COVID, seen everything is shut down, right? If now you don't believe that you need at least three months, maybe, you know, six and possibly 12, if this doesn't convince you, I don't know what else is going to convince you that you need to save money. Because I promise you, there's never going to be someone that reaches out to Lauren or myself and says, damn it, Lauren, damn it, Emily, you made me save too much money. I've never heard right. that. I've never heard that. I, I, <laughs> Nor have I. <laughs> and I don't think I'm going to, but just, you know, you can't go wrong saving. You just don't. You know where I think it stems from, though, is this idea of like all these get rich quick, you know, like say, I need it now. There's so much, I think I need to do this and I'm going to become a millionaire overnight that people just don't want to save money. They're just like, that sounds boring. It sounds slow. It works. Mm -hmm. It works every single time. Mm -hmm. You put $100 away, you're going to have $100 more saved Mm -hmm. as opposed to not saving anything and then hearing about, oh my goodness, this next best, blah, blah, blah. And now all of a sudden you want to scrape together your $100 because you hope it's going to turn into 500. Mm -hmm. Well, if you just would have saved that same 100 over the last five months, you would have had 500. Right. We're going to talk about those get rich quick schemes, but I want to talk about a few more principles because I think the first two were spot on. And mm-hmm. I think if you get the first two, you earn to get the right to get the next two. Right. So we got to get, right. if you get these two. We got to get the next two. What are the next two that you would say? Yes. So the next one I would say is a savings rate of 20 percent. And I probably just call somebody to wreck their car. If they're listening like <laughs> what? <laughs> and I haven't even laid the whole thing on you yet. I want you to save 20% of your gross income. So if you bring home or if you make $100,000 a year, you don't get to bring home $100,000. But I still want you to set your mind mentally to try to save $20,000. Plain and simple, we've got to get our savings rate up, which means we need to live off of less. Mm -hmm. So that would be kind of goal number three is if you never want to hire a financial person, you don't want to, you know, like, am I saving 20% of what I make, period which means I probably need to live off of less, which kind of like brings me to the fourth point, which is you have to have a budget. Mm -hmm. It is like the big bad B word. People would rather throw the real B word around than the budget word around. But if you do not have some way to account for what is coming in and what is going out, then you're always going to be wondering like what the heck is going on with your finances. If you don't ever take accountability and account for what's going on, how can you ever have a plan to know I can save 20%? to know that my house is 50% of everything that I'm bringing home and I probably shouldn't have bought this much house. You can't do that gut check on yourself if you don't ever take a time to really look at, okay, where is this money going and what's the black hole? So the way I like to do it for people who don't want to transaction by transaction categorize, I love it. That's my thing. So the app that I use is called You Need a Budget and it's great for those that, like you said, want to get all in the weeds. But if you don't want to get in the weeds, I bring home, let's go with 10K again. So might sound like a lot, but let's think mentally we can get there. Let's get to 10K take-home pay this year. What can we do to increase our earnings so we can do that? So bring home 10K. I got to pay rent. I got to, you know, do blah, blah, blah. So what do we already say? We wanted to save 20% of our income. Well, we know that if we bring it home 10K, 20% of that is 2K. But also that's probably not our gross income because they already took some taxes out. So we're probably saving a little bit more than that. So let's just say we're saving 2500 Now, we got $7,500 left. I got my rent. I got my utilities. I have, you know, all these things. And so let's say we get to the end of like, okay, we got our obligations. Like we got to keep a roof over our head. We got to feed ourselves. We got to pay some of these, you know, different car insurance, whatever. And now there's $4,000 left over. 
that's the black hole of money because you got your Peloton, you have your eating out, your entertainment, whatever the case may be. And it's not to say you can't do those things, but do you need to spend 4,000? If that's the black hole of like, I got everything I need covered, I got my savings covered and I still have 4,000, you know, this is where the black hole is. How can I increase my savings? How can I increase my retirement? What generally happens is people are not saving that 20%. Mm-hmm. So they go through everything and they see, oh, okay, here's the stuff I absolutely need. You know, there is 6,500 left over and all of that money is going to, I don't really know. Now you've kind of mapped it all out and said, okay, now I know where it's going. And you probably find that it's like $3,000. Like, okay, I can still spend three and I should have 3,500, but I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. What you should do is just automate that 3,500 right out of your account into savings and out of sight, out of mind. Now you can start to still go to the movies, whatever concerts and things that you're into. You left some discretionary money in there, but that black hole of just kind of like swiping your card meaninglessly is gone. It's done. Like I call it conscious spending. I borrowed that from someone else. We talked about it on the show before, but the budgeting, when you're talking about what you're going to spend on, like you talk about the black hole, right? I think if you are conscious about what you're spending, because it's easy just to slide the card, right? Just Mm -hmm. slide it, slide it, slide it. Which is why they created them because we don't feel anything. Mm -hmm. Because there's no cash. There's no pain. It's funny to me because I will carry a hundred dollar bill in my wallet just because the pain of breaking. If it's a hundred dollars, I'm not breaking. It's 20. It's out of there. You know what I mean? I can spend the 20, but I'm not breaking the hundred. It's just not the way it is. (laughs) So what I'm saying is I tell people to budget, but then I say, well, just consciously spend. They're like, what do you mean? I said, what do you like to do? Oh, I like to do this. I like to do that. I like to do this. Okay. So you name three things that you like. Now you don't get to do the other things that you've been doing that you don't really care about. Just do the stuff that you care about and don't do the stuff you don't care about. If you'd like to go eat out, then eat out, make a budget for it. <laughs> there goes the word again, right? Mm-hmm. You may have your conscious spending allowance on how much money you want to spend eating food. That's fine. You have to give and take. That means there's something else that you're not going to be able to do that obviously isn't that important because it wasn't in the top three things that you like to do. Exactly. I think you nailed it too, is this idea of we're not taking things away from you by you accounting for what is money is being spent on. There is tons of things that you love and we can still afford to do things that you love and still have money left over that we're just kind of, like you said, spending on that's frivolous and that is not important or, you know, doesn't align with our values. So. Exactly. So I think those are great points. And I'll just ask if you can recap those four principles real quick, and then we're going to move on to the next question. I want to spend some time on this. Yes. Let's get an emergency fund. Mm -hmm. Let's be debt free. Mm Let's start saving and saving 20% of our income, which I know somebody's going to want to slap me for that, but it's okay. (laughs) If you do it, you're going to love me. Right. Never going to come back and say, damn it, Lauren, I got this 20% sitting in my account now because you told me to save it. I'm mad at you. (laughs) Right. And last but not least, find some way to account for your spending, also known as budgeting. Uh Uh-oh, you said it. I know. I I try not to, but you know. (laughs) Absolutely. Those are great. And okay, so now that we got that, we know how to take care of our student loans. We know the basic financial literacy principles from Lauren. Let's talk about these get rich quick ideas. Let's touch on these a little bit, you know, and there's so many. There's a lot. And I'm just going to say this one in the outset, like the number one thing that I get from people, you know, because everybody thinks I'm just a stock jockey, right? Like I just pick all the stocks. Ask me what stock to pick. I'm going to tell you, you're going to be a millionaire. That's what it is. I mean, that's, you know, that's just how we do it. So mm-hmm. more times than I can count on my hands, my toes. My hands and my toes, right. People ask what stock should they buy? And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. 
I don't know. I really don't know. But I mean, what do you like? What do you buy? What do you like? Well, you know, I see them wearing Nike stuff. They're driving a Chevy. Like own what you buy. Buy what you own, I should say. If you own it already, you already believe in the product. If you got Apple everything, you probably should own some Apple. That's just simple stuff. Does anybody ever do that? No, I've never had anyone come back and say anything about the hot stock that they ask about or anything like any of those tips. I've never had anyone come back and say, hey, man, I went and bought that. Or I went out Mm -hmm. and bought this stock to do this or do that. But tell them something about something else. They can go buy whatever right away. But when it comes to investing in people's self, they just don't do it. Yeah. Follow through is a real problem. And the one thing I always like drive home when I even think about these whole get rich quick schemes is that very seldom has anybody invested any time in getting rich slow. Mm -hmm. And so we've already alluded to it in the form of saving, like who is saving 20% of their income? Who's saving 10% of their income? You know, and then XYZ idea comes around the corner and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, oh, I'm so excited. Okay, let's do it. Like you said, what have you done to get rich slow that you feel like I need to now get rich fast? Like if you were getting rich slow, you wouldn't be so eager to try to like, okay, I got to buy a home. I got to do this. I got to do investment property. You know, I got to buy so-and-so's course so I can become an influencer. Like it just goes on and on. Like the Susu is another one that is like, it's like a spinoff, you know, it's not even a real Susu. So I actually did some research because I kept like, you know, something stinks, but you can't tell something like why it stinks. Like, what is that? Where is that smell coming from? And I'm just like, I know this is a get rich quick scheme, mm-hmm. but I need to be able to articulate to my clients a little bit more about why. Actual Susu is not a bad thing, but it operates within a very small group of people who know one another. Mm-hmm. So that's how the Susu works. So if you don't know, I'm not going to go the whole, that's a rabbit hole, but there is a thing. And so someone took that idea and basically spun it a little bit and said, I'm going to just get rich quick off of a lot of people by calling this thing a susu and it's not really. And they have all these pretty pictures and yeah. you know it pops up every other month. So it's like a flower and you're the middle of the flower and you bring four of your friends in and they all spend a thousand dollars and then it's going to be your turn to get the 16,000 or whatever the number is. But then the four people got to bring in four more people. And the whole problem is that, you know, somebody is going to fall through the crack because no one's putting their thousand dollars in every single time that they're supposed exactly. to. But if you can really save a thousand dollars and you think you're going to get the 16,000 after three times, then why not just be putting a thousand dollars in the bank and have your $12,000 at the end of the year? Hey, did you try to get rich slow? Did you even think about that idea? Was it even an option? Like, and I think that or I know that we know this is the microwave generation. We want everything yesterday. We want it two days ago. We want to be rich now. We want to do all this stuff and we love instant gratification. But I promise you, if you will do the principle, like the 20% thing is huge. And it's funny that you said that because we just did that like this morning before we got on the call. I was like, okay, we got some money. We put 20%. I didn't know you were going to bring that up, but that's what we do. I think over the last year, we really beefed up our savings and paid down debt. I think we paid off like $30,000 of debt last year. And it was just one of those things that like, we're getting rich slow. By paying down the debt, we increased our net worth. Yes, because that is a much better factor and a much better way to kind of manage your progress than whether or not your credit score is going up. Like Your credit score might not have changed last year, but $30,000 of debt, increased net worth, that's a real thing, which is something that we don't spend a lot of time talking about either. It's like, what does that even mean? A lot of people don't know how to calculate your net worth. So assets minus liability. So what do you have? Versus what do you owe? What's left over? Is that a positive or a negative number? You want to get that number 
as a positive number. That's kind of how the net worth works. I had a mentor a while back that said, Emlyn, we don't track our income. We just track our net worth. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I knew what he was talking about, but it didn't hit me. And so then after working with him for a year, because he mentored me for a year, it made a lot of sense at the end of the year. I haven't tracked income like that since then. That was like four years ago. I always track. Right. Because someone told me, because I didn't know. This is four years ago. And that means I had already been in the industry for 16 years. Exactly. Misconception is that because we're financial planners, we have it all together. There are tons of different strategies to take advantage of. And there are also, like you said, tons of things that you learn via experience or from, you know, family members. Like I mentioned, not coming from a place where people are talking about money a whole lot or had any real strategies in place. And nobody in my house ever said the word net worth. So, Mm -hmm. you know, where was I going to get this information from? And you go through the CFP coursework, you read this blog, you know, diving into all these different educational mechanisms, but they're all talking from different angles. And very few of them are talking from angles of, you know, people who have been impoverished or have been low income traditionally and now are trying to earn. It's always about like, you know, what wealth is already. They make some assumptions about what you already know versus kind of like starting from the basics so that you can also take advantage of the strategies being a high earner. Yep, absolutely. Man, this is good. I love all this stuff. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we are changing the complexion of wealth. What motivates you or inspires you to grow, learn, and lead. Talk to us about that. Well, I think for me as a young Black female in the financial industry, I've been very driven to grow. Like Once I've gotten ingrained in the industry, learned that I am somewhat of a unicorn. So I went to a conference once and realized that I was one of four people of color out of 400. And I only knew that the number was 400 because they were talking, you know, at the introductory session, like, yeah, we had 450 registrants or, you know, whatever the number was. But I was like, oh, and I looked around and I was like, okay, there are not a lot of me around. Mm -hmm. And so my motivation and inspiration comes from being an example to other young females that they can to be a financial planner, that this is a profession that you can join an industry that is wonderful But then also an example to black people or, you know, people of color in general, that we can start talking about money. We can start having these conversations that we can hire financial professionals, that it's okay to spend money on this thing. And also that you can hire a professional of color because last numbers I saw was 23% women, which means there's a lot less if you're a woman looking for a financial planner and you want to work with a woman. And then I think it's like 3.5 people of color with not all of those being black. So, you know, like you want to work with a person of color. Now, out of all the people that exist, you've got 3.5% chance of finding one that is of any ethnicity other than the majority. So I'm inspired by just, you know, simply being in this space, uh, the community that I've discovered in this space, but also, like I said, I want to grow. I want to be better so that I can be an example and I can really help people who come to me you know, best organize their finances, optimize their finances really is a key part of it and continue to lead others into the industry. Love it. I'm inspired. I'll tell you that. Just so much inspiration from you, Lauren. I love what you're doing. I love how you do it. It's you and it's yours and it's authentic and it's awesome. So yes, you're truly an inspiration. Do you think education plays a big part in wealth building? I think education plays a large part in wealth building. We are not properly educated. Like I said, there's a lot of information swirling around out there. The world is like content is king, content creation. Like I said, we have these coaches and these influencers and it's just, we're being inundated with information, but being inundated with information is not the same as being educated. 
and the source of the information and the credibility of the information, the quality of the information that you're getting to me is what makes it actual education. So very important, but I think more important than that is transparency. And so transparency is important because you can't get educated if you're not talking to anyone about what's going on. So as an example, if you and I are having a conversation and I'm not open to telling you, you know, I don't know what a 401k is, and you might know, you're not even a financial professional in this example. You know what it is. You know you put 3% in for your employer and that your employer matches 3%. I have no idea what it is because I'm not even comfortable having a conversation about something that has to do with money. I never know that. I never start contributing. It's five years down the road because like you said, no one's ever talked to me about that. Whereas, you know, that conversation can be so different because you don't realize that you have key information. You're just like, Ooh, you know, my 2021 goals are to increase my 401k contributions to 6%. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I need to be able to ask you and you need to be able to ask me, Hey, what is your goal for this year for your 401k? And then that at least opens the door for me to be able to say, I don't know what a 401k is. Like, what do I do? But we're so, so afraid. There's so much secrecy. There's so much that's been taught about, like, don't ask, don't tell, stay out of my business about my finances. Don't tell anybody how much you make, et cetera, et cetera, that it is incredibly damaging because you cannot get educated. While I would love for every single person to have a financial planner, there's tons of things you can Google. People are not Googling the right information. Like I said, you end up in some clickbaity hole and now you're <laughs> investing in real estate instead of putting money in 401k. You know, you weren't well served, which is why you need to be communicating with people and being transparent about like, hey, I'm trying to learn more things. What are you doing? Because the people around you that care about you are not going to let you make a bad decision and more heads being put together. Even if you all don't have all the information you need, by the time you guys got to get together and have a conversation about like, okay, wait, something stinks. Let's look more into this together. Or, you know, I know this, you know that the two things kind of, they don't go together. So let's look more into that and see which one is right. But it starts with a little bit of transparency because you're out there trying to do it on your own and you don't know what you don't know. Like you hit the nail on the head. I don't even have anything to add to that. I really don't. You crushed that one. If you could offer a piece (laughs) of advice to our listeners, what would it be? I would say the biggest piece of advice I would have is to start asking questions. So in the same vein of this transparency, start talking to people and understanding what it is they have to say. What was their experience? What are they doing? If we don't start asking questions of the people around us, we're not going to be able to hold them accountable and we're not going to be able to get information from them to make ourselves better reach our full potential. And then we're also not going to be able to be accountable because what do questions do? They give answers. Answers bring about more questions and a conversation is happening and information comes from that. Like I said, the same vein of this whole education being important, you've got to start educating yourself by asking questions. Like, how do I get information if I don't ask? Ask that of the people that you hire, whether that be your yard man, your housekeeper, your financial planner, whomever. Ask questions of your friends, the people you care about. And I always like to think of it for me, you know, and this is a huge passion point as it pertains to even being in the industry. I know all this information now and I'm getting myself on track for retirement. But what would it feel like if I made it to X age and was ready to retire and all my best girls who I love to hang out, my fave five, are getting ready to work another 20 years? I don't have nobody to hang out with in retirement. Why am I not telling them what I know right now so that we can all go on these trips together when I'm ready to retire? What are we doing to hold one another accountable? Because the people you care about should not become your dependents later on. They should be on the same path as you and you guys should be encouraging each other in the right direction. That's it. I have nothing else to say. (laughs) 
Lauren, man, this is good. This is really, really good. You know what? Incredible. I'm just sitting here like a listener. Like I was just like, <laughs> we're doing a show, but no, this is really, really good. I love every bit of this. I can't wait to re-listen to the episode. I just wanted to thank you for coming on. And if the listeners want to get more of Lauren, what social medias are you active on? Where can they find some more Lauren? I am on all the things. So my name is Lauren with a Y, like Lauren Hill, but Lauren Will. So Lauren C. Williams on pretty much every platform. And then the company is Worth Winning. So I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook as Lauren Williams and as Worth Winning. So if you're looking for more financial information, check out the Worth Winning stuff. We post regularly. Like I said, we're trying to educate people. And then, like you said, if you want to know more about my Olympic pursuits, then the Lauren C. Williams sites will help you out there. Awesome. So there you have it. This is Lauren Williams, and she was awesome. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm Emlyn Miles Battingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.